This is the Signs of the Times Commentary, a look at the world from around our kitchen table. As we promised last week, this week on our Signs of the Time podcast, we will be interviewing Laura Knight-Yadchik, who is the author of several books, including The Secret History of the World and How to Get Out Alive, which is almost 900 pages of painstakingly researched and fascinating material on a vast array of subjects, including ancient civilizations, the alien abduction phenomena, the origins of the Bible and organized religion, and indeed right up until the present day and cutting-edge quantum physics theories, particularly pertaining to the idea of hyperdimensional realities and how that concept may have extremely important implications for each and every one of us. Laura weaves all of these concepts into a cohesive and extremely enlightening redrawing of what she terms the real history of our planet and the human race. Laura's book, The Secret History of the World and How to Get Out Alive, is available on qfgpublishing.com. We ended up last week talking about what we might have in store for ourselves on the planet with earthquakes, volcanoes, cometary passages or near impacts or meteorite impacts. Laura's book delves into these issues, and we'll be coming back to that a little later. First, Laura is an American. She moved to France a few years ago, and this is related to her work. Do you want to talk a bit about uh, why you felt it was necessary to leave the United States? Well, hi. Yes, I'm um, glad to be here with you all tonight. Uh, As glad as I can be about anything in this present day and age. Uh, Let me just first say the, uh, the issues that concerned me at the time we made the decision to leave the United States had to do as much with personal um, matters as it did with, uh, you know, our work, because I didn't see any way that we could continue with our work uh, if our personal matters were under threat. Um, as many people know, my, my husband had worked as a contractor for uh, a company that uh, made nuclear materials detectors. It was an interesting uh, project, and uh, as soon as that particular phase of the project was completed, he was being uh, very subtly pressured to uh, sign a a security agreement to to have his uh, citizenship process completed so he could uh, sign a security agreement and go even deeper into the the whole of the arms industry in the United States. Uh, Neither of us saw this as a positive development, even though uh, the money was quite good. Uh, We were able to run our website for several years, uh, you know, completely at our own expense, out of our own pocket. Um, And uh, that was, you know, a very good feeling, even if we didn't have much time for anything else. But I saw that, um, that if he did not continue uh, working for the arms industry that there wasn't going to be much else that he could do because it was fairly fairly certain that all of the really good basic research was in areas that were were off limits and for somebody who isn't in the scientific community this may not be so obvious and even for some people who are in the scientific community because many people many scientists just follow the money and they never stop to think that uh, what gets funded is generally what isn't really worthwhile. 
But in any event, we uh, we could see that with him being a not a citizen, and with me having uh, a very strong proclivity to speak my mind about what I could see was creeping fascism in the United States, that it would be very easy to shut me up by putting pressure on my husband or to uh, cause problems within the family by putting pressure on on children or um, otherwise causing us difficulties, which in fact was already occurring. We we had some difficulties. And uh, aside from that, there was the, the purely personal reason that I did not want to be associated with a country or a government or an administration and here I don't mean America per se is in the America of the ideal, but I mean America in the sense of, of what it had become, uh, that I did not want to be personally associated with uh, something that was going completely fascist. So that was the reasoning behind our decision to leave, and we set about doing that as expeditiously as possible. And it was at the time that uh, you and Ark left the U.S. It was the build-up to the invasion of Iraq. And you were telling people that you were moving to, to France. And I think that there were some, some curious things that happened just in the weeks prior to your moving in terms of the, the reaction of Americans to France because of a lot of the propaganda that the, the Bush administration was, was working on. Well, this is really strange because uh, the decision to move uh, took a long time to to really make because I had spent my entire life within 50 miles of where I was born. I don't travel well. I still don't travel well. I don't like to travel. Um, I'm I'm pretty much of a stay-at-home person, and, and I had lived all my life in pretty much the same place. But... Uh, Seeing what I was seeing and understanding where it was going, and, and I want to say something something else about that in a moment, um, we, we began to discuss it, to evaluate our options. And uh, one day I was talking with one of my daughters about it, and I said, you know, this is really a scary thing to think about, you know, moving and leaving everything you know. And... Uh, and she said to me, she said, well, Mom, you know, if, if you're right, you'll be able to continue doing your work for a lot longer than if you stay here. And what's more, you'll be able to help a lot more people. And if you're wrong, you'll have an adventure. So I decided that that was the best way to look at it, that it wasn't that I had to be right, but that if I was right, it was a good thing, and if I was wrong, it still wasn't a bad thing. And uh, so we made the decision, and that was in the early fall of uh, 2002. And then we began to gear ourselves up to actually leave. And, and as the weeks went by, it was quite astonishing to notice the uh, sudden change in attitude toward France because we'd already made our decision to, to move to France. And the reason for that was quite simply because my husband had friends and colleagues in France and he, he liked the the environment, the the country, the, the ambiance, um, the culture, the society. And suddenly France was the enemy. 
And uh, we took one of our vehicles to the shop to get it prepared to be shipped. And the uh, the mechanic asked me where we were shipping it, and I told him France. And he told me, he rolled his eyes, and he says, Well, you know, I hope you know what you're doing, because, you know, you can't trust those Frenchies. Turn your back, and they'll stab you. Which was quite an astonishing turnaround and attitude within just a few weeks' time. So then the day came that we were actually packing to move, and there was a, a big shipping container in front of the house, and everything was being packed. And uh, we got a a FedEx delivery, and the FedEx man said, oh, you're moving. I said, yeah, we're moving. Where are you moving to? We're moving to France. And the FedEx guy looked at me and said, well, you know, I guess you know what you're doing, but you know what those Frenchies are. So it was quite amazing that within just a few weeks' time, with the propaganda machine in full operation on the television and the you know the, the mass media that the attitude of nearly every ordinary american and let's face it you know the fedex delivery truck driver and the mechanic are, are probably not very likely to be uh reading any kind of political uh commentary or anything other than watching the news at six o'clock or taking a glance at the front page of the newspaper so uh, the average person, Joe Sixpack, uh, was you know quite thoroughly uh, propagandized into believing France was part of the evil empire. So, so uh, all of this was obviously happening in terms of the the build up to the war in Iraq and the obvious desire by the Bush regime to 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 invade Iraq and the the opposition by the French government that had been growing towards that invasion. So I mean obviously that was a, a major part of the of the um of this of this kind of consensus that you were getting from ordinary Americans and it was but again in in, in hindsight we can see that all of that was a lie basically so Well certainly it was a lie and there were also other issues that had to do with uh with some of my other writing, for example, on October 22nd, I I, I published a piece where I uh, directly suggested that there was a cult in control of America and that this cult was a kind of a Judeo-Christian um, uh, conspiracy, if you want to call it a conspiracy, uh, believers in Judaism, believers in Christianity, and and the eschatological predictions of the end of the world had uh, joined forces because of of the beliefs of of those of followers of those two religions. And that's not to say that all Christians and all uh, followers of Judaism uh, believe in those end of the world predictions, but they that there is a large segment of them that do. And because they believed in the end of the world, they were doing everything they could to facilitate said end. There are those who actually do believe that there is supposed to be a nuclear war and that that's going to uh, signal to Jesus that it's time to come and, you know, whip up on everybody and kick butt and take names. So so on that day, I pretty much said so, and it was very shortly thereafter that hate mail began to arrive with actual threats. Not too long after that, our dog was poisoned while we were uh, at the store. Uh, we became aware of strange vehicles uh, passing on our street, parking at uh, 
at places where vehicles never before had parked on our street and um it was it was just a very unusual time so we we did feel that there was some considerable pressure uh to leave and uh to leave in time because we were being rather vocal mm-hmm. So would it be safe to say that uh, in terms of the creeping fascism that you were noticing that led to your decision to to move to France, um, or certainly was part of the decision to, to move to France, what uh, would you say that 9-11, the 9-11 event and the aftermath of that was was, was a central part of that? Uh, in oh, absolutely, absolutely, because you know, on the day, day of 9-11, it's really funny because I was uh, I was sitting in my living room reading uh, reading a book i was doing some research for something i was going to write and my youngest daughter came running downstairs and said a plane flew into a building in new york you know come and see come and see well i wasn't going to go upstairs and, and to, to, the kids had a a living room upstairs where they watched television and i wasn't going to go upstairs just to see a plane crash into a building that sounded pretty boring to me and uh and a little while later, she came running down again. And she says, Mommy, Mommy, another plane crashed into a building. You've got to come see. And then she, she dragged me out of the chair by the hand and pulled me into into my bedroom where she turned on the television. And that's when I first saw uh, the World Trade Center with smoke pouring from it. And uh, and right there and then, I knew this is this is it. This is, this is the event that is going to be used. Because um, f- for years, we had speculated and talked and theorized about our about our our Cassiopeian experiment because of course they were talking about all these things happening and and as far as we were concerned it was just interesting um theoretical discussion nobody could even imagine in their wildest dreams how such a thing could could come about that there would be an event that would be like turning a key in the lock where one you know you 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 put it in you open that door and then you walk, you pass through it and on the other side you're in a completely different world. So there it was, 9-11, and that, uh, you know, I kept hoping against hope that speaking out, that trying to be rational and reasonable, you know, pointing out the obvious, you know, the, the, the first question, qui bono, who, who benefits from this event, that um, the American people, you know, were far too too reasonable to be taken in by something like that. I mean, I, I believe that the American people, after having been exposed to door-to-door salesmen and telephone salesmen for so many years, that certainly they had become immune to sales jobs, and this was clearly a sales job. Yeah, but unfortunately there are a lot of door-to-door salesmen that make a good living. Well, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but I, I guess my... Uh, my belief was that uh, America was way too smart to be taken in by this, but I was, well, I don't even want to say I'm wrong because I still believe that most Americans really know it's just that under the circumstances, under the under the system of control where the media is controlled, where the judiciary is controlled, where the executive branch has been taken over by a gang of fascists, there's really not much people can do and you almost can't blame them for not speaking up and not doing anything because everybody hopes that it's going to get better if they if they follow the the channels if they uh if they contribute to the American Civil Liberties Union or if they uh or if they go to a protest or a demonstration or if they write letters to the president or they write letters to their congressman that somehow you know all of these tried and true 
methods that they've always believed in are really going to work, and and they don't really understand the kind of mindset that must exist in a group of people that would undertake to conspire to produce the scenario of 9-11 for the express purpose of instituting the fascist controls on a country that has occurred. And there's still a great faith in the United States in the electoral system, as we saw in in the last elections, in spite of the fact that in Ohio, for example, the, the voting was rigged. But then the news about that doesn't get out. and That's the single biggest problem that I see in front of us. The control of the media, the censorship, the fact that probably, um, oh, let's see, um, 10 out of 12 people undoubtedly have some serious questions that they would like to ask Bush and his gang about 9-11. But they are afraid to, and when we have Guantanamo, to thank for that, because, I mean, if, if there's enough news blown around on the media about people being tortured, nobody is going to talk. I mean, come on, the Catholic mm-hmm. Church figured that out during the Inquisition. As soon as people found out that they could be tortured, you know, they, they, they fell right into line. So this was a tried-and-true method. And the Nazis used that and when they came to power in the 30s, when before they started rounding up the Jews, they went and, and got members from the Social Democratic Party people, activists that had been active in the local communities and took them off. Mm-hmm. And they made sure that everybody knew that these people were being tortured. Yeah. And just just like in uh, um, Central American countries, when uh, the CIA had moved in and installed these dictatorial regimes, and of course they had torture chambers, and then they would broadcast the the screams of those being tortured. And this is essentially the same thing, but instead of having loudspeakers, they're simply disseminating bit by bit some of the stories of torture, and that basically forces everyone to get in line out of fear. Yeah. yeah. It's it's an interesting point, the, the idea of the clampdown on the media. Not only uh, does the, the control of the media um, lead to the fact that um, people in America cannot actually become aware of, of the, the truth or of what's actually going on in their country, but uh, people aren't able to, people aren't aware of, of the amount of other people in the country, or, or people outside of America aren't aware of the amount of Americans that may actually have already you know, realized what is going on, you know, I mean, there may be a large percentage or certainly more than 50% of Americans who, as you say, are are wakening up or have woken up to what's going on, but they're essentially silenced because they have no representation in the in, in the mainstream media. And if you think about it, that that means that such things as, as the torture scandals uh, were not really leaks, they were deliberate leaks. Mm-hmm. They were they were not an embarrassment to to the administration. They were deliberately planned to uh, to produce just that fear. And, and f- the same thing goes with this uh, recent uh, event in London, where where the young man was uh, shot by by the police uh, for basically, I mean, totally an innocent person, uh, and having it broadcast so widely and and. Even when the police say, oh, well, we made a mistake, but, you know, it's better to make a mistake than to be sorry, because now this is added to the fear level. And that is exactly how the Catholic Church controlled the world for a very long time with the Inquisition. It was fear, Mm -hmm. you know, totally through fear. 
So, yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting point because there's a, a story in the news today actually about the uh, where the Metropolitan Police Chief in, in the UK has stated that the that British public opinion has now shifted. Uh, after the London bombings and any previous concern about um, arresting possibly innocent people and, and shipping them off to countries where they would probably be tortured uh, has now been wiped out essentially because people have been traumatised by these London bombings. So essentially you've got a, a shift in, in, according to the police chief, you've got a shift in, in British public, uh, you know, in essentially in their morality. Uh, in 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 terms of their, they will now supposedly be much more willing to accept uh, you know brutal and inhuman treatment of 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 essentially their fellow citizens, be they Asians or Middle Easterns. Well, I wonder how much of that is even true because, uh, for example, we're sitting here talking about it. We can see that it seems to be engineered to create that kind of fear and produce those kinds of results. We're sitting here talking about the media being controlled and how, you know, the real opinions and the real ideas of the majority of people are not represented. How do we even know that these polls are representational of the majority of the people in, in Great Britain? But exactly, but that's the point, because then the, the media, through the, through the government and police officials, will parrot the, the words of... Um, of these uh, officials, of the poll, yeah. uh, essentially telling, therefore telling people essentially what what, what they they're believe. supposed to believe, yeah. and then the ones that don't believe it will think that they're unique, yeah, and they'll be afraid to speak up. Exactly, exactly, and that's that's yeah. how that's how it's being done. It's 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 a quite clever maneuver, and it uh, uh, it works, and it's worked since time immemorial. This is nothing new. This is uh, if you study history, you see that this has been done time and time again. It's just in this particular period of history, it's being done on a global scale because we have global communication. And, uh, you know, this global communication is, is a double-edged sword. It, it not only can bring people together, as it was doing prior to 9-11, uh, or it can completely separate people with terror and fear, which is also being done. It's, it's a great tool for propaganda as well. I mean, the rumors fly on the Internet faster than the speed of light, I can tell you. I want to uh, come back for a moment to what I mentioned a little bit ago that uh, about creeping fascism uh, and how it, what I could see affected my thinking about where we were, where we were going, and what we could and should do. And there was a uh, there was a story written by Elie Wiesel that I had read oh quite a number of years ago that had rather profound effect on me. And he talked about what it was like when he was a boy when the uh, Nazis began to take over Germany and how several people came and they talked to his father about what was happening and that uh, how the, uh, the Nazis were acting against the Jews and how things were going to proceed and that uh, at some point their lives would be in danger. And his father, with each with each warning, would put it off and say, no, civilized people can't do that, they won't act that way, that won't happen, there's the legal system, there's, uh, you know, there's human civilization that dictates that such things can't and won't happen, people are civilized, this is Germany, it's an industrialized nation, you know, civilized na- most civilized nation in the world, arts, crafts, science, etc., etc., and uh, then finally the day came when... It, 
their actually their maid came and said, "You must leave now. You must leave now. You know, come and I will I will hide you." And their maid was uh, was not Jewish, um, and she was willing to take them out into the country where her family lived and hide them. And Eli's father once again said, no, that won't happen. They won't do that. And even if it does happen, it's all just a little trifle. It'll be straightened out. You just get a lawyer. You you handle things in the normal way by the normal channels, and everything will be fine. And as a consequence, uh, I believe most of, of the family uh, died either in concentration camps or on the way to concentration camps. And uh, Eli alone was left to tell the story. So when uh, when we study history, when we see things and we notice that things are similar, we can pretty well figure out that the things, you know, there is nothing new under the sun. Things go in cycles and and people in civilized Germany did uh do the terrible things that uh uh, that we know now from history, and we have to see that these things are coming again, and they are happening again, and we can't rely on civilization or the normal uh, channels of of uh, taking care of ourselves through the legal systems, through you know, through various appeals, and even appeals to people being civilized and and having. Um, a rational view of life because there are just simply periods in history when everything goes crazy and people go crazy and this is one of them indeed the idea of um that that a lot of people would would hold to is that that they would recognize it again if it, if it was coming that i mean that they're smart enough they're aware enough they would see it coming a mile away is, is has got a lot of problems uh, to it um particularly in terms of the idea that where where there is um uh, major war and, and death and suffering that is instigated by by a nation state. Uh, almost always, this is it, it, these events are predicated on um, a control of the press and a clampdown on on the on the general population to ensure that such atrocities can actually occur. So there's a, there's, there's a paradox there in a way that people where people think they will be able to to recognise it when it happens uh, in a vacuum of awareness. Uh, which is which is essentially imposed on the people, and even if the lines of force are similar, they come dressed in different clothes, and so it's never exactly a replay of what happened of course, before. Yeah. And so people delude themselves into thinking, well, it's not the same thing. Yes, but the thing is, is it is the same thing, and and clearly, anyone who studies history and who carefully studies current events, and I don't mean just what they want you to think, because. Um, for example, uh, 50 years ago or 50-some-odd years ago, there was Pearl Harbor. Um, it's now well-known and documented that Pearl Harbor was allowed to happen deliberately in order to engender support for the U.S. entering World War II. At the time, if anybody had said that, had said that FDR and his and his staff or his administration uh, deliberately allowed Pearl Harbor to happen, and may even have baited the Japanese into into that action. Uh, people would have been horrified. They would never have believed it, and they would have considered anybody who said so to be unpatriotic because there was this this fever for war. 
So 50-some years later, actually less than that because it's been known for some time, the truth comes out. Well, do we think that now is any different or that any other period of time has been any different, that that the governments that, that control the people are going to tell them the truth about what they're doing then? Of course not. It, mm-hmm. It's no different at all. Indeed, we noticed that the... the, the the, the fact that people are horrified when anyone suggests that, that 9-11 was, uh, in effect, similar to, to Pearl Harbor, that, um, that the U.S. government uh, was certainly in some way complicit in, in that event. And we see the same horror as, as occurred in, um, uh, during, after Pearl Harbor when, when anyone was suggesting that, that, this, that Pearl Harbor was, a, was essentially a, a government job. Well, the funny thing about that is, and this is um, this is a little personal view of it. I didn't uh, didn't know anything about conspiracy theories, you know, and I'm putting that in quotes until somewhere around 1985. And when I became aware that there were such things as conspiracy theories, you know, the the idea that our governments were doing things behind our backs or in our names that were not very nice. And, and here I'm, I'm revealing some of my own naivete. Uh, I was really horrified, and I began to research this subject with the intent of proving it false. I wanted to, to, you know, to find the arguments to argue against such horrible things that were being said about people who up to that point in my life had been considered heroes. Um, but the more I studied and the more I dug into the matter and the more paper trails I followed, the more I came to understand that if they weren't conspiracy theories, they were conspiracy facts, and they were backed up by mountains of documentation that the average person never bothers to look at or, 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 or research. Um, they pretty much were, were like me until I became aware and began to wonder, can this possibly be true? So it's uh you know it's it's a very long way since 1985 to now what 20 years 2005 and the world is so completely different now from what it was then that it's almost unbelievable uh the world i knew even before 911 is no longer here i mean I- any one of you who tries to remember what kinds of things you were reading in your newspaper before 911 there was the usual, um, oh, there was, uh, you know, murders here. You know, there was a little corrupt scandal there. There was uh, some good news here. There was some bad news there. There was, you know, this country was uh, offending that country maybe. You know, there were just just fairly normal things of, of the functions of a, of a global community with its little spats and squabbles that were being worked out. And... Nothing was terribly um, frightening. And now the news is totally and completely frightening. And I wonder if anybody really thinks about that, thinks about the complete and total change of the reality from before 9-11 to after 9-11, from the day George Bush got elected, from, the, from, the, from that week-long agonizing election debate... S- debate that took place when George Bush was finally awarded the presidency rather than being elected, the whole planet has gone to hell. It's the 
Kmart blue light special going to hell in a handbasket. One of the uh, questions that we get over and over again in response to the science page and the, the, the comments and the articles that we publish is especially, particularly from Americans, uh, from American readers, is what can we do about any of this that you're talking about? Uh, because to some extent, there does seem to be a certain <clears throat> fatalism. A certain fatalism, yes. Well, as as everyone should know by now, if they've read much of what I've written on the website, uh, we don't advocate any kind of acting against others. We do advocate self-defense only to the extent that it's necessary to defend oneself. And, of course, in some cases, such as the position the American public find themselves in today, there is really not a whole lot you can do overtly to defend yourself. The one thing you can do right now is to gather as much information and knowledge and awareness about the true situation as possible and keep your eyes open for that opportunity, that, that moment when when opportunity knocks, that point of no return where where something inside you says, this is something I can do and it is in me to do it and I will do it. Uh, for me or anyone to tell anybody what they should do, when they should do it, or how they should do it would be would be completely against that philosophy. But but yet we do know that that there is a moment in time in everyone's life when they see something that they were born to do, and they do it. Um, and once again, you know, I, I reemphasize that this is never. Never anything violent, ever, uh, against another person or against oneself. Uh, one must simply, if, for example, if you can share information with another person or if you can uh, uh, give support or if you can speak out when, when it's possible. And, and here I don't mean that anybody should put themselves in danger because discretion is the greater part of valor. Uh, there have been groups that have stood up against you know, corrupt governments from time immemorial, and generally they all die, and the governments stay corrupt. Mm. So the point is not to make martyrs of oneself. That, that's that's silly. That's pointless. And it's also not to to act against the constituted authority because because that also is 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 suicidal. You don't you don't even want to go there. But if you gather knowledge, you gather information, and you're aware, and you keep your eyes open. Somewhere at some point in time, an opportunity will show itself to you. And like the flapping butterfly that caused a hurricane on the other side of the ocean, some small act, maybe it's a word you can say mm-hmm. or, or some bit of information you can convey to the right person at the right moment that will change you know, the dynamics, the, the nonlinear dynamics of the entire planetary system and, and can change the world. Mm-hmm. Indeed, that's that's very good advice because if um, if we look at the extreme efforts that the government, uh, our governments in general, uh, particularly the U.S. government, has gone to to um, to cover up and to hide information from the from the general public, uh, that would seem to suggest that that this that public awareness or the public becoming aware of, of, of the reality of the situation is is in some or somehow a serious threat to them. We don't know exactly why or how, maybe, but certainly they seem to 
at, at all costs want to uh, ensure that the people remain ignorant of, of what's happening. So inform yourself then would certainly seem to be the, the first step anyway. Well, there's an interesting story about Thoreau who was asked why he, how he had managed to get himself in jail <clears throat> over what he considered to be an unfair tax. And his response was, well, the question is not, you know, why am I in jail? The question is, why aren't you in jail? Um, it was a completely peaceful protest. He refused to pay a tax that he considered to be unfair. And there are all kinds of peaceful ways that people can express their wishes. Uh, Gandhi was another one who advocated the peaceful protest approach. Uh, if, if for an entire week... Everybody in the United States refused to go to their jobs, you know, until until their Congress people, uh, you know, undertook to make some changes to straighten things out. Uh, that might have an effect. That's the, the, those kinds of things can be effective if a lot of people do them, but if just one or two or a handful or two or three million, you know, what? There's two hundred and seventy-five, three hundred million people in the U.S. People in the U.S. and if uh, and if 18 to 20 percent of them are fundamentalists who want to bring on the end of the world, uh, that means 80 percent could change it, could change could change that plan. The other 80 percent, they could say, no, we're not going to let that 20 percent drag us all to destruction. And what about the idea that, um, you know, gathering knowledge, the more you dig into, into the rabbit hole, and, and uh, find out what really is going on. And, I mean, certainly, it's a at this stage for us anyway. It's it's a, it's, it's a never-ending uh, journey. Uh, what about the idea that uh, the more you do that, the more you seek the truth and find the truth and assimilate the truth, uh, that that would in some way galvanize you to 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 either act or to to act in in a way that is, is based on that knowledge, uh, which would therefore be the maybe the most appropriate action to take. Well, knowledge knowledge protects, but only when it's applied. This is a, a good general thing to to remember. And sometimes applying knowledge means to keep silent when you need to keep silent. Sometimes it means to speak when you need to speak. It 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 all depends on the the circumstances. You know, the uh, there are the three forces. There are the there's a specific situation in which something occurs, which determines whether it's good or evil. Because you can't you can't make everything black and white. You know what is good in one situation can be evil in another situation. So you have to be you have to be able to assess situations and determine which is which. Uh, always speaking out, always speaking the truth out in public, can be just as just as as certainly evil as it can be good. Um, so, you know, one has to be very careful when applying knowledge, and 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 of course knowledge. Uh, having knowledge implies that you know how to you know how to apply it. Um, an example would be when we decided to leave the U.S. I had spent years, you know, reading and studying and and gathering all of this information, and here was here was finally the moment when I was being challenged to act on what I knew or what I mm-hmm. thought I knew, and. Could I do it? It was very difficult, as I said, because I'd lived my entire life uh, where, you know, near where I was born. I was, I mean, come on, I've got f- ancestors that came on the Mayflower, you know. I mean, nobody is more American than I am. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
So you're talking about getting to the point where as much doubt as possible is, is, is removed from a person's mind about, about what is true and what is not true, because if there's doubt, there'll always be the you know, wishful thinking, maybe it'll allow you to think, okay, it's not so bad, but if you get to the point where you really dug into it and seen to a large extent that this is the way it is, well then you're more, more inclined to act upon that. Yes, and, and, and you have to spend some time doing it. And, and you can do things in incremental ways because, for example, for me it was, uh, you know, after 1985 when I began digging into the whole conspiracy theory thing, things developed over time. And, and as I gathered more and more information, then finally the day came. Uh, th- that led to the, 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 the Cassiopeian experiment, which was uh, another way of gathering information. And uh, then there was testing, challenging, research, and so on. And all of those things led little by little to the day when finally I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start putting some of this on the web and see if, uh, you know, run it up the flagpole, see if anybody salutes. And uh, it started out basically as just a, as, as a hobby. And <laughs> everybody in the room is saluting. So it started out as a hobby, and uh, one thing led to the other. So th- those were, and, and now I'm in France, and now we're doing a podcast. Now we've got you know several websites. We've uh, uh, we've got many activities uh, going on all over the globe with various members of our of our discussion groups and our working groups. Um, so just that little that little beginning. Each time uh, an opportunity was offered to me to make a choice to do something, one thing led to the other to the other. And it can be the same for anybody. You can't say, you know, well, I want to get out of the U.S. because it's so bad. I, no, 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 no. You have, to, you have to begin working. You have to begin doing things. You have to do what is in front of you, what is available to you today. What can you do today where you are, where you live, with the resources that are available to you at this very moment? And for many people... That's not much, but you know, if you take advantage of what little you have, if you are faithful with a small amount, then you're given more. There are more and more opportunities that are presented to you. That's it for part one of our interview with Laura Knight-Yadchik. We'll continue next time. <laughs>